Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the Springfields. I've got the huge pleasure of welcoming Mike Hurst, who was a member of the Springfields, but um, in his own right, he is a songwriter, singer and producer. Much of his fantastic body of work is now represented in a new four CD box set out on uh, Strawberry Records, an imprint of Cherry Red, called In My Time Recordings, Productions and Songs 1962 to 1985. A huge welcome, Mike. Absolutely. It's been a lifetime. How are you? I'm good. Good thing is, is that this box set is does cover a, a real good representation of your work. Yeah, it does. It starts near the beginning, and obviously the Springfields was, in a way, your springboard into the career. Uh, how did you get involved with the Springfields? Because I don't think you were part of the original trio, but you no. joined just as the band embarked on a new period of success? Look, I got lucky, Jason. I mean, <laughs> everybody has to get lucky at some stage of their life, and I did when I was 19. My mother actually answered an ad in the stage newspaper for wanted young singer-guitarist for well-established vocal group. And I went and did the audition. And I had no idea what it was for, because nobody mentioned the Springfields. Now, as you'd already alluded to, the Springfields then, at the beginning, were more a sort of TV sweetheart actor, very nice, etc., etc. And Tim, one of them, Tim wanted to leave, and we not wanted to. He was going to leave, so they had to replace him. And I did the audition, and amazingly, I got it. I'm not sure why, because of the audition, I sang... Uh, Mess of Blues by Elvis Presley, mm. which is not very Springfield, I think you'd agree. Mm. And uh, I got the gig. And it wasn't long before you started having hits with the band as well. Well, I mean, that's what I mean. To walk into something is so lucky. I mean, Silver Threads and Golden Needles became top uh, 20 in America. It was actually the first British vocal group to have a top 20 American single. So I fell into that fell into going to Nashville immediately afterwards to record, and then coming home in the end of 62, falling into Island of Dreams, which was a big hit for us too. So yes, I got lucky, absolutely. What many people may not know now, but the Springfields in their day were, were absolutely massive. You were the, the best British vocal group uh, in the NME, 62 and 63, Yeah. just before the Beatles came. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we saw them coming, by the way. <laughs> We'd seen them at the cavern. We knew what was going to happen. Uh, but yes, and our last performance at the London Palladium, Sunday night at the London Palladium, apparently had a viewing figure of 21 million people. Wow. And to make you laugh, to tell you what we got paid, mm. a bit like professional footballers at the same time. We got paid £350, split three ways. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> which I love. That was the programme to be on. There was no bigger programme. No, there wasn't. It was the big, biggest light entertainment programme in, in Britain. Absolutely. The story goes that it was Dusty that kind of wanted to go on you know, a solo career, but was it as clear as that in relation to the, the group splitting up? No, it wasn't. I mean, there are two funny things here. One is that Tom Springfield said to the other two of us, Dusty and me, at the Winter Gardens up in uh, Blackpool, said... Um, why don't we break up? <laughs> right out of the flu. And me, like an ignorant idiot, just 20-year-old, said, yeah, that's a good idea. So he did. But what I didn't realize till years afterwards is, you're right, all this had actually been planned. 
stuff that you'd already recorded, I only want to be with you. So they just didn't let me in on the secret, put it that way. Feels like an obvious thing to, to ask, but was it obvious the incredible talent that Dusty had and her voice? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I mean, if you, if you compare, and I'm, I'm not being nasty, I'm, I'm just, mm. to me, it's a fact. If you compare her to her contemporaries of those days, yeah. I mean, Lulu, Sandy Shaw, Cilla Black, mm. I mean, Dusty was streets ahead of them. So, I mean, yeah, she was wonderful. We used to love performing. I mean, when the, when the three of us worked together, it was always she and I who, who bounced off one another and had a good time. Tom just wanted to get off. He wanted to go home. <laughs> Well, you must have been really young then, and then kind of thinking about what to do next, and you you went on you embarked on a solo career. Well, yes, I did. I, I put a group together called The Methods, and um, I had Jimmy Page playing guitar for me, uh, which was <laughs> amazing. I mean, he was only seventeen, and I was twenty. And um, yeah, we had that Tony Ashton from Ashton Gardner and Dyke. Tony played keyboards. Uh, we had a really good band. Our problem was, we didn't realize till afterwards, we played the wrong sort of music for 1964. We were doing country rock straight out of Nashville, whereas everybody wanted the Beatles. Well, we didn't do the Beatles, so that was that. Well, there's some great material there. Any time that you want me is a, a really good example, and that's, that's one of your own songs, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I freely admit, trying to be more Beatley than, than, than country. I sometimes listen to that one. I think it's really frantic. <laughs> and I smile when I listen. My wife says, why do you sound so keen? I don't know. I said I was only 21 by this time. Why not? That was very much on vogue at the time, though, that that sort of Mersey Beat style sound had that everything was absolutely. quite pacey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I knew with the Beatles, I'd say we, we, we were, saw them at the cavern, John Lennon made us honorary members of his fan club. And, um, you know, we got on very well with them, but we knew our time was, was up. Uh, and as I say, that's why I started a group and tried to sound more like the current thing that was happening then uh, than uh, we had before as the Springfields. And I replaced uh, Jimmy Page, of course, with Albert Lee, who's wow. still one of the best damn guitarists in the world. Well, it's incredible hit rate there, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've read a... a... An interesting story about um, Johnny France, the producer, and talking about Jimmy Page and not really rating him. Is it was that? <laughs> it was funny. He actually said, to "Johnny, bless his heart, uh, no longer with us, of course." But Johnny said to me on the first session we did with Jimmy, he said, "That boy can't play guitar." <laughs> so I said, "I think he's really, really good." He said, "Do you know something? He can't even read music." I said, well, I'll surprise you, Johnny, neither can I, so that's that. <laughs> it was very funny. Anytime that you want me, I'll be there to make you smile. Anytime that you want me, Something happens to my heart every time I look at you 
obviously you've got your own solo material, you're, you're writing material, and I assume that over the, these years you're getting experience or exposure in the studio yes. and you, you actually started to go under the wing of people like Mickey Most. Yes. I mean, it's my wife that did it because she said, you've got to make some money because I'd spent everything I'd earned, as you do in the music business. So um, she said, you could be a record producer. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. And she said, well, what did your record producer, Johnny Friends, do? I said, he read the Daily Telegraph on the control desk while we were singing and said, let's take another one, and went back to reading the paper. She said, you can do that. <laughs> I said, yeah, I can do that. But I didn't, of course not. You're right. I, I went and did stuff for Mickey Most and, and, and Andrew Oldham because they were the two sort of real, apart from Joe Meek, they were the two real independent producers of the day. And I learned my trade there. But even when you listen to some of those tracks you were involved in as a producer like Barry St. John's, Come Away Melinda, it's a yeah. great, great sound on that record, but you didn't get you didn't get the credit? No, I didn't get the bloody credit. And I didn't get the credit because Mickey, who didn't expect it, I have to tell you, didn't he? just for him it was a cover version, an English cover version. He didn't think it would be a hit. And of course, as soon as it went into it, looked as if it was going to go in the charts, he had a new lot of records pressed up with his name on there as a Mickey Mouse production. I was livid, but that was life. That's the way. That song in particular, Barry's version, uh, you know, sadly, sadly left us a, a, about a year ago. Yeah, it's got, um, in a way, sort of sinister, <laughs> or seemingly sinister, or more interesting yes, edge. I agree with you. Yes, it is. I mean, it is sinister. I agree with you. I know exactly what you mean. In fact, what we did was we used Barry's voice and speeded up the track to make her sound like a child.
next mic we've got Mark Bolan and the third degree his debut single yeah how did you get uh, to work with Mark he must have, again he must have been very young himself well he was I was working for an American record producer called Jim Economides he wasn't really a producer he was an engineer at Capital Los Angeles and he came over here to sort of basically to rip some record companies off because he needed the money and uh, during the time I was there which was about six months Two guys came into the office at different times, of course. And one was Mark Bolan, um, and Jim was con- was convinced about him. And he said, you go into the studios and you make a couple of tracks with him, which I did. And, I mean, I really I really like those tracks. Uh, but nothing happened with him, of course, because it was going to happen as T-Rex later on. But, of course, the second guy who walked into my life then in the same office with Cat Stevens. Yes. And that's when it, ch- it changed everything for me and for him. That's an interesting comparison, and we'll be coming on to Cat Stevens. Do you think it was that you could spot the talent with Mark and you could spot the oh, yeah. talent with Cat, but the, the songs for Mark just weren't there yet? The songs probably were. Actually, in, in a way, more than the songs, what wasn't there yet was the rawness. If you listen to The Third Degree and in the same sort of way, The Wizard... There's a rawness about the recordings. He he liked that big, uh, clunky guitar sound, which will become uh, Get It On and T-Rex, the whole thing. It was embryo. It was the embryo. It was there. Um, but it hadn't quite come out in the songs. It, it was going to be more like a sledgehammer when he did it. And uh, eventually, as we say, he did do it, yeah. The Wizard, uh, was that Tolkien-esque? Yes, yes. <laughs> he used to say, I said, why is it called the wizard, Mark? He said, because he's there, man. I said, yeah, okay, where is he? He's in that tree outside the window. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Mark, bless his start. He was a nice guy. Third degree was far more like the T-Rex stuff that would happen five years later. Baby, it's all I got 
mentioned Cat Stevens and just an incredible talent. Do you, do you want to say how you kind of come under the orbit of, of Cat Stevens and how you got to work with him? Yeah, he came into the Jim Economides office, as I said, where I was working, and Jim thought he was a load of rubbish, <laughs> which I couldn't believe. And I said, no, you're wrong. I said, I think he's fantastic. I think he's going to be a big, big star. Uh, and Jim couldn't see this, so he didn't sign him, and uh, I left his employ because I wasn't getting paid. And I was sitting at home in my London flat and the doorbell rang and I went there and there's, there's Cat Stevens standing there. And he just said, nobody wants to know about me. I've been to all the record companies in London, everything else. Nobody, are you still interested in me? I said, I certainly am. I said, that track, I love my dog. I said, we got to do that. So I'll find the money to do it and we'll go and record it. And we did. There's an interesting story that, that I didn't know about that was that when you recorded that, he wasn't signed and you managed to find a way to, to get that studio time. Yes, I did. I mean, I told Decker, Dick Rowe at Decker, I told him that I was actually, well, it actually was true. It wasn't a story. I thought I was leaving the country to go and work in Los Angeles for a record company. But I said, I want to make a farewell record. So I said, would you do me a favor? Can you give me three hours in the studio to go and make this Mike Darbo song called Going, Going, Gone? Uh, and Dick said, all right, but no no longer than three hours. And gave me three hours in number two. And of course, I went in and did I Love My Dog instead with Cat Stevens. And um, blow me down. <laughs> I took it into Decker and said, listen, you know, I... I told you a, a lie. I said, I made a record with this new guy. And he said, how dare you? And I said, no, no, I said, listen to it, listen to it. And I played him the acetate and he listened to it. He just looked at me, stared at me. And he rang up Sir Edward Lewis, who was the chairman of DECA. And he said, Sir Edward, come down and listen to this. Sir Edward came down the stairs, played the record, looked at me. And it sounds like a Peter Sellers story. And said, my boy, you are a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so I fell about the heat, and um, <laughs> I agreed with him <laughs> eventually, and that's how it all happened for Cat Stevens. It launched a new label for Decca, didn't it? It did, DRAM. Actually, it, it launched it by default, right. because the very first single, DRAM 1, was uh, Denny Cordell's artist, a, a girl singer, and I can't remember her name, she's going to drive me mad, but so Cat Stevens was number two. The first single, Denny Cordell's production, didn't make it. But, of course, I Love My Dog did, scraped into like, just outside the top 20. But it made his name, and it made my name as a producer, for which I was very grateful. They're just gorgeous productions. Follow-up Mafia and Son as well. Um, oh. Brilliant. Well, a wonderful story about that, Jason, is that um, when I made Mafia and Son, I took it into the pirate stations because that was the, always the way forward then. And I went to Radio London and I, I said to the guys there, here's Cat Stevens' new single, second single. And they put it on and said, ooh, um, don't think it's as good as I love my dog. I said, oh, I said, come on. I said, it's better. 
They said, no, no. They said, I'll tell you what, we'll put it on the air for a week. If, it's, if we're not selling records at the end of a week, we'll have to take it off. So I said, okay. They played it for a week. And on the Friday at the end of that week, Tony Hall, who was head of promotion for Decca, came running down the stairs of a BBC studio in London where we were with Cat Stevens. I said, Mike, you'll never believe it. I said, what? He said, Matthew and Son sold 60,000 a day before lunch. Wow. <laughs> and that was it. It's incredible. Two, was it two albums you, you did with uh, yeah, Cat Stevens? Yeah, Matthew and Son and, and New Masters, yeah. No, I knew exactly what I wanted, actually, because, you see, with Cat Stevens, with, with producing Steve on two albums, uh, it was very much, in terms of the arrangement, a three-way split between the arranger, Alan Chu, me and Steve. Steve wrote songs, and, and always actually wrote songs, to me, with arrangements in the way he performed them for me. So he plays something and he'd sing, and I'd think, what's going to play that? And say, yeah, I'm going to get a harp uh, to do that. So when it came to doing First Cut is the Deepest, I already had the ideas about what I wanted to do with percussion, with everything. I knew, really knew exactly what I wanted. And then was there... Acrimonious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, in the music business is what it is. I mean, you know, you, you you work hard to make something happen and make it work, and you're all getting on like a house on fire while you're trying and doing it. But when it's done and when it's worked and when it's happened... Quite often artists feel they want to go elsewhere or they want to do their thing. Or in my case, which is absolutely true, I wouldn't deny it. I saw things differently to Steve. Yeah. Um, Steve wanted to do um, more of an acoustic type approach to his music. And at the time, I didn't see it. And as it turns out, he was quite right. So <laughs> that's where we were. We, we, we split after New Masters. And uh, he went on to do what he did, of course, in the 70s and early 80s. And good luck to him. We're still friends, so that's fine. I love my dog as much as I love you. For you may think my dog will always come through. All he asks from me is the food to give him strength All he ever needs is love And that he knows he'll get So I love my dog as much as I love you But you make a fame My dog will always come through All the pay I need comes to shining through his eyes I don't need no cold water to make me realize that I love my dog as much as I love you. For you make a fame, my dog will always come through. As much as I love you For you make things My dog will always come through
Next mic we have P.P. Arnold, first cut is the deepest, and obviously there is a connection with Cat Stevens there, and I think it was because Steve wouldn't release that as a single, and obviously you saw that song's potential? Absolutely, and I, I took it to and Andrew had actually called me, Andrew Oldham, and said, would I like to produce, um, or did I have any songs for one of the iKets, P.P. Arnold? And uh, I, I said, sure. I listened to her voice and I thought, yeah, she's great. So I said to Steve, listen, I'll take our first cut of the deepest. I'll do this to P.P. Arnold. He said, fine. So we did. And what a record. I mean, when people ask you about your career and say, what are you really proud of? What's the best thing you've done? That's one of them. P.P. Arnold's first cut. I must ask you about the recording of that, because the sound on that is just epic. Um, do you remember the studio set up for that? Oh, I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Olympic number one in Barnes in London. And, I mean, it's a huge studio. And I doubled on everything. So I had a double-sized string section. So instead of, let's say, three violins, two violas, uh, two cellos, I had double that, six, four, and four. Then I had two drummers, full drummers, I had two percussionists, two bass guitarists, two keyboard players. Everything was doubled. And I remember it. All I could think of at the time is this is a bit like flying. It must be like flying a jumbo jet. You have this huge console in front of you with all the controls. And you looked out on this massive studio with all these people. And when it really starts to hit you when after the first few run-throughs, it's just the most amazing sound. I listened to this and I thought, yes, yes, yes. This is good. This I love. Uh, and it was. It's a record I truly love. I would have given you all of my heart But there's someone who's torn it apart And he's taken almost all that I've got But if you want I Try to love again, baby. Try to love again. It comes to be a lovely place. 
And when we were discussing Barry St John's Come Away, Melinda, we were talking about how the difference between what you did compared to the original version that just makes such a massive difference. And perhaps Manfred Mann, Mighty Quinn is a case in point because <laughs> you hear Manfred Mann's Mighty Quinn and you just think hit, but you'd hear the Bob Dylan demo and you would not think hit. <laughs> I, I, when, I went, when Manfred played it for me and said, we're going to do this, I said, no, <laughs> I think it's terrible. Can't do that. And I'm so glad he persuaded me to do it. Yeah, it's true. We've been talking about that with uh, First Cut, but the studio work on that is great. And um, there's kind of like a percussion on that that, that lift it and, and drive that song forward and harmonies as well. Was it who was influencing that process for those ideas? Was it the band that were having the ideas? Was it you or was it collaborative? Well, no, Mighty Kim was very Manfred. Um, Manfred drove that. I. I... I didn't. I produced it, but I didn't. No, I didn't drive it. Manfred did. Were you involved in, in recording the Manfred Mann album at the time? Mighty Garvey. Hmm. Terrible. Thank <laughs> 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 you. For me, it's terrible. I think it's awful. But there we are. <laughs> <laughs> you have to laugh. Do you think at the time they were very much more, more of a sing, singles type band, and that the focus was trying to get. A great single. Yes, it is. And, and Mighty Quinn was, was, was a great single, I think. No doubt about it. And it was a, a similar thing where you you know it's a hit when yes. when you hear it. Exactly that. You, you know, Mickey Most always used to say, if you can't pull them in in the first 15 seconds, you haven't got a hit. Now, that's generalizing, I know. But very often it was absolutely true. So that... That just bang. I mean, that that just hits you between the eyes, and you're off and running. It's great. It's like a horse race. Tell me where to put them, and I'll tell you 
these songs are on different labels how were, yeah. were bands coming to you or were you wanting to get in contact with bands how how were you linking up well sometimes it's interesting sometimes the move came to me i mean roy wood came to me just to do a single he said would you do this single with me um we did curly which was number forgot the number five and other times you find acts yourself um you, you go looking for people auditioning people. I auditioned Arthur Brown. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm. I auditioned him in a club in London and he set fire with a cup on top of his head and his hair caught fire. Mm. And I had tears running down my face watching this. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And to make it even funnier, at the end of it, he said to me, so what do you think? And I said, Arthur, I said, you go, go in for a talent contest on television I said, you'll win it hands down. But for me, I said, the record's not for me. And three months later, it was number one all around the world. Amazing. Amazing. It's just great. I love it because that's the music business. Yeah. You you mentioned Roy Wood there and the move. I don't know if you get full credit for, for working on that. Were you a producer or engineer on that, Curly? I was a producer. I must be credited. I've never got paid, but I must be credited. <laughs> What was it like working with the group at the time? Oh, very funny again, because Roy, I can't stand the recorder. It's one of the sort of instruments I can't bear. <laughs> and Roy insisted on teaching himself the recorder. And it, yeah, it makes the record work, I have to admit to that. Uh, but overall, we made the record so fast, and Roy couldn't understand it. He said, why have we only done uh, two takes? I said, because your second take was great. There's no point doing it again. He said, well, it, 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 it won't work if we don't do it again. And I said, you're mad. I said, what you've done is it's the cheapest record Roy Wood's ever made. And it probably made him more money than any of the others. Ah, well, yes. <laughs> yes. You it... know, because you have to pay for this mm. if you're an artist. Does it make it easier working with an artist like Roy Wood who can basically do everything, or is it that... Or does that become difficult if that that particular talent is becomes strong-willed and starts kind of overriding? Why? You know, being a record producer, Jason, you know, people say, what is a record producer? And I always used to say it's a combination of things. It's being a politician, it's being a musician, and it's being a nanny. Because you, you, know, you have to treat artists in a certain way if you're dogmatic. If you insist on doing everything your way, you won't keep that artist because they move on in a flash. So you have to learn how to treat them and how to react to them and everything else and generally do mostly what they want to do, but adding your bits too. You have to do it that way. the world. 
So next we have one of your solo tracks, uh, World of Glass, from your home album. But that was, I had um, Colin Blunstone on oh. just a few weeks ago, and this was the B-side of you know his uh, re-recording of She's Not There that, that you worked on. Yeah. What led you to reinvigorating your, your solo career? I don't know. I tell you what, probably sitting in the studio for so long with so many different artists, suddenly thinking I'd like to do it for myself. Mm. And the World of Glass, for me, is the best song I've ever written. That's one I'm proud of. There are others I'm not proud of, but I'm proud of that one. I don't know, you know, you, you want to do this. I, I had the inspiration to make an album myself of all my own songs, so that's what kicked it off for me. And again, I, I mean, I got quite lucky because the Americans, Capitol Records, uh, loved what I was doing, and they supported me, so that was great. And you worked with a lot of incredible musicians recording uh, your solo albums, didn't you? Oh, my God. Uh, Rod Argent, John Lord, Roger Glover, Nicky Hopkins, Ian Pace, uh, yeah, I mean, Doris Troy. I mean, I, I God, I had a great lineup of musicians. And, yeah, it was fantastic. It, it, was, a, it was a pleasure to do, actually. And that's one of the, the great things about this box set, actually, is that your two solo albums, Home and In My Time, are CD2. So you get to hear those records together, representing your, you know, your singer-songwriter phase. 
Yeah, and I, I'm happy with my. I mean, a lot of people would probably not be that they think anything that's past its sell-by not isn't going to speak for them. But I listen to those two albums sometimes, and I think, yeah, not all the tracks, of course not, but I listen to it and think most of them. I think I, I'm really pleased I did these albums. I, 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 apart from the musicians, I mean, I had the Elton John band. I mean, Nigel Murray and uh, Nigel Olsen and Dee Murray and Ray Cooper. And they played on all the tracks on In My Time. So there I was with the Elton John band, making my own songs and my own records. And it was just so, I don't know, it, it knocked me out completely. I loved it. Probably the, the strongest strongest CD out of them all. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, it's awful for me to say that, isn't it? But <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, that's my, that's my feeling. Sit here by my window I see life as I like it to be But it don't see me So I just go on sitting You might call it quitting Hoping that the bad times will all pass but they won't Cause my world's just made of glass Remember in the children's story Tell me mirror Who's fairest of all Well then you'll recall That the queen went on believing We'd call it deceiving Thinking that her looks were just top class But they weren't Cause her world was made of glass In a bus In a plane In a car In a train Or in our homes I guess it's just the same we're always looking out with a puzzled kind of grin But perhaps we'd all do better looking in So next time you go to your window Don't just sit there, just open it wide And put your head outside just be sitting No, you won't be quitting Hoping that the bad times will all pass Cause they will For your world's not made of glass
us about fantasy then, because that this is quite an interesting story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just said sometimes as a producer, or I guess the same thing with movies, the same thing with anything. Sometimes you get an inspiration out of nowhere. You don't know where it comes from. And I can remember, I, I sat down one day in my office in London, and I thought, wild thing. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if a, if a woman did that, you see? And initially, I was thinking of, obviously, a, a sort of a Janis Joplin-type approach. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this record, I mean, the, the, the words of wild thing. If, if a girl sings this, it's going to be quite raunchy. So I, <laughs> I got a hold of my friend Ray Fennick and Mo Foster on bass, and Les Binks from Judas Priest later on, of course, uh, on drums. And we went in the studios, and I, I found this girl who'd been Rod, one of Rod Stewart's many girlfriends, <laughs> who was a penthouse pet, and she couldn't sing. And it's really annoyed me, and I thought, well, she, she looked the part. But I, I said, okay, just breathe. So she sort of breathed through the record, and blow me down Atlantic in London, Atlantic Records, didn't want to know. Ah, uh, no. So I said, send, just send it out to the States then, see what they think. Next thing I know, I got a telephone call from Big Tree, who were a subsidiary of Atlantic, said, we're putting out your record, a wild thing. Next thing I know, it's in the top ten in America. <laughs> and it's just amazing. And people still say, Americans I know, I know still say that, they remember exactly where they first heard that record in 1973 because it was so blue, if you want to call it anything else. And it was. It's a very sexy record. And it worked. Now, what many people won't know is that off uh, the, the fancy album in that period, Feel Good, oh. it, it has been sampled so many times, <laughs> including by the Beastie Boys, and it's... Um, and Madonna. And Madonna. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> It's a sort of, um, I don't know, you, you sort of, in a way you sort of feel a bit uh, in, inflated rather than deflated because someone's taken the trouble to sample something you've done. It's a compliment though, isn't it, that it's been <laughs> dug out and... Yeah, it's a compliment, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But they have, apparently, I don't know, there are more than 50 or 60 people who have sampled that. But, I mean, Annie Neal, who came in to sing properly when I put yeah. the group together for real, Annie had a fantastic voice. Um, we toured America, and um, the second single made Top 20, Touch Me, which I wrote with Ray Fennick. Yeah. And, um, and and then, of course, it didn't, because they were too good. I know it sounds stupid, but they were too good. Um, when you sell a record like Wild Thing, punters, the, the and the people on the street, they want to have something else, an album yeah. loaded with those sort of tracks. Well, I didn't want to do that, and the band didn't either. We wanted to do what we would term proper rock and roll, uh, and that's what we did. But as I say, that's not what the general public wanted, so unfortunately it was the best album, I, I think one of the mm. best albums I've ever made, which is just non-attainable, sad, but true. Yeah. 
Our next song is a band that were one of the most successful groups of the 1970s, and, and I actually think their their first single is is very good. Well, listen, I know who you're talking about. Of course, they do. But everybody <laughs> laughs at Shawadi Wadi. You see, they they say, "Oh yeah, Shawadi Wadi." Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. But do you realise that they ended up having, I think, 18 top 30 records, top 40 records. I said, that's a lot of hit records. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, what they were was an English shanana. They were a rock and roll homage band. Yeah. And live, they were great fun. And you're right about Hey Rock and Roll. Hey Rock and Roll, mm. to me, was a great first single for any band. And it really worked. And of course, when we got to Under the Moon of Love, well, I mean, my friend Tommy Boyce, who wrote that with his partner, Bobby Hart, I mean, that's a great commercial song, mm. uh, and was number one. There's a great story you tell about the band when they went into the studio. They were they were quite naive, weren't they? Oh, <laughs> completely naive. God bless their hearts. Of course, they were. God bless his heart, Buddy, who was doing the lead vocal on that, who's no longer with us either, sadly. Mm. Well, Buddy said to me, I said to him over the talk back into the studio, I said, "You're too loud on that section." He said, "What do I do?" I said, you just, uh, I said, I thought, this is ridiculous. I said, I, two of us come out there, take you by an arm each and pull you back from the microphone, then put you back again. Oh, he said, right. Uh, so we did the next take and he was as loud as ever. And I stopped the track and play, press the talk back. And I said, what happened? You're still just as loud. He said, but nobody come out and drag me back. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, they were quite naive about it. But on the other hand, why not? You know, you, you takes time to learn how to work in the studio but uh, they, they were they were fun to work with they were fun
the incredible talent just keeps coming and coming here and um your rear is becoming very very clear as we go through this material and talent spotting we next we have bruce woolley and the camera club right. and what is in effect the original version of video killed the radio star it here is. from it is yeah he hadn't told me the little devil that while we were recording that first album bruce woolley and the camera club He'd actually gone on with Trevor Horn and made the bungled version of Video Kill the Radio Star. And the next thing I know, I got CBS Records on, on the line to me saying, what are you trying to do to us here? Uh, this group called Buggles have got Video Kill the Radio Star coming up. I said, I didn't know anything about it until yesterday or whatever. But they didn't believe me. They thought that I, it was a big fiddle. But it wasn't. It's just that Bruce, in his naivety, which it was, didn't think it would matter which he was an idiot because, of course, the Buggles record came out first because CBS had decided to wait till we finished the album. And that was that. Buggles had the huge hit and Bruce Woodley and co. didn't. But that's a good album. Band as well. I mean, he had Thomas Dolby in the group. Oh, we did. We had Thomas Dolby. We had, uh, I'm just trying to remember everybody's names. I can't. We had the guitarist from The Cure. Oh, we, Lord, we had, they were a great group, the Camera Club. And I mean, that record, English Garden, that's, that's some lovely tracks. I mean, Bruce Woolley was a great songwriter, really, really, really was. I've read that Trevor Horn was in the band originally, but he was a bit of a pain in the studio. I sacked him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sacked him because he wanted to do everything his way. And I said, yeah. you're just a bass player, no. <laughs> he went and became a, an enormously successful producer but that's life again that's, that's all that happens
the same time, it's, it's such a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, you're making a, an album with a group like Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club, and at the same time, you're talking about somebody like Shaking Stevens. Yes. You know, they're, they're streets apart, streets apart. But it, that's the fun of the music business again. Yeah, because Shawaddy Waddy, huge single success, you know, one of the biggest UK groups of the 70s, but Shaking Stevens, the biggest singles artist of the the 80s. It, again, is this a case of you just spotting talent? Yeah, but I, I, I guess so, but it, it, it went on a lot earlier than that because right. I was recording him and the Shaking Stevens and the Sunset for uh, track records. And... Um, we nearly got away with a, an Eddie Cochran track called Never. We nearly made it with that, but he didn't. Then we, he and I lost touch for a couple of years. Next thing is, he was in the Elvis show in London. And he rang me up and said, would I like to come and see it? And I said, sure, and of course I would. So I went to see it, and he was fantastic. I mean, of the three Elvises, the young, the middle, the old Elvis, he is the middle Elvis. He was sensational. And I went back to see him in the dressing room and he said, he said, uh, he said, I don't know what I'm doing here. So I said, well, I said, you're making a bloody great show. He said, yes, but uh, he said, I'm not making any money. So I said, what? I said, how much are they paying you? He said, I said, 300 pounds a week. I said, 300 pounds a week in a West End show. That's a huge success. I said, that's ridiculous. I said, who's your manager? He said, I haven't got one. I said, do you, do you want one? He said, yes, please. So I said, I'll go and see Brian Ricks, who was the owner of the theatre, and therefore was doing all the promotion. And I sat down with Brian Ricks, and I said, you've got him on at £300 a week. I said, he's the star of the show. You can't do this. You've got to pay him more money. So he said, he's under contract. I said, well, he'll be sick for a long time. He won't be able to fulfill the contract. So he looked at me and said, okay, what do you want? And I said, well, he's got to be worth at least 1500 quid a week because he's the star and he agreed and of course shaky was very happy about this but that shaking stevens album has got some great musicians on it as well though hasn't it oh god yeah of course albert's on there albert lee garane watkins on piano yeah we have there's some great musicians on there and hot dog is just a lot of fun good rock and roll record
Now, before we go and we, we give the box set a final mention, um, you've got a book out on the history of popular music. It might be worth mentioning that. Yeah, it's been, been out for some time, but you can still get it on Amazon or eBay. <laughs> mm. It's called uh, Every Song Tells a Story, yes. And is that about placing, say, the last 50 years in a bit of a more broader context and going back even further? No, it goes back even further, Jason. It's... Uh, what it goes back to, it's all based on the English language. So therefore, I go back to 16th century England and Shakespeare and the sonnets set to music and the, all the way through and uh, how music metamorphed into uh, into early blues, into ragtime, into jazz, into rock and roll and, uh, yeah, just how it all works like that because I lecture on the subject as well. So I did a lot of research. A last plug here for the uh, Mike Hurst In My Time Recordings, Productions and Songs 1962-85 to and hopefully this podcast is a great taster for, for many of the tracks that are featured on that box set and uh, a huge pleasure to talk to you, Mike. Um, I mean, so many great stories and so so much great music here. Oh, Jason, it's very kind of you for, for allowing me to talk about it. So I hope I've made some mm-hmm. sense and yeah, it's people are interested in the box set let me tell you you know there's there are 92 tracks on there i mean some of them you might not like uh but some of them i'm sure you will like so i hope i just hope you enjoy it whatever happens yeah i, I do urge the uh, the listener to sort of dig in because there's quite a few hidden gems I, i'll give um warm sounds birds and the bees um, a oh, special mention birds and bees love it the harmonies on that are amazing and the strings oh it's wonderful that was my idea Strings. I mean, I, I thought it needed something different, so I put a string quartet in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much, Mike. Um, it's a, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's a pleasure to, for, for me to have you talk to me, Jason. Oh, thank you. No, not at all. I will listen to your podcast. Oh, brilliant! Thank you. Well, um, all right. Thank you again, Mike. Take care. All the best. Bye. <laughs> There you are in the corner No, it's no use you hiding from me Cause I know that you want me It's easily plain to see What's the difference? You're sitting on the cold hard floor So I wish you'd decide to come here for a kiss and a cuddle with me Don't be a 
sorry, dear. I can see you by the twinkle that shines in your eyes. No, I don't think it's starlight. It's your passion for me that I spy. Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.